Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, we're kicking off our third annual pie month by taking a deep dive into the history of this beloved dessert and introducing a pumped-up British classic that has a starring role in an iconic London-based movie. You want pie? We've got pie. So grab some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, we had a lot of fun last month during our Eat Your Veggies Month introducing our 19 for 19 baking resolutions. Yes, we did. We got so many great resolutions and I want to announce that I am making progress on one of mine. Excellent. Of course you are. I'm not surprised. So a late-breaking edit to one of my entries was to do some things I was calling Turkish delights and I was broadening my scope to do a variety of Turkish baking and desserts because a good friend from Turkey had given me a beautiful cookbook. Ooh. Well, Andrea, I have made my first Turkish pide, which is a Turkish pizza. Have you had a pide? And I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, I have had, I don't know that it was called that, but I did have little Turkish pizzas when I was in Turkey years ago, and they were very good. Kind of the size of my hand, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly. And they look like a boat. In fact, that was the instructions was to form the dough. It is a yeast dough, almost like what I'm guessing a cracker dough might Mm. be, like a homemade cracker dough. No, I haven't made that, but it was very thin. Okay. Then the instructions were to make it into a boat shape. Then you put in your fillings, and I did some feta and some roasted tomatoes and some caramelized onions and some fresh oregano. And then you kind of twist up the sides to make a little boat. And they were divine. So I not only made a new yeast dough, but then a new to me dish as well. So I just wanted to report on one of my 19 for 19. I'm off and running. Oh, man, that sounds so good, too. You know, other people's resolutions always sound so much fun. Now I'm reconsidering <laughs> some of mine. I want to cook Turkish as well. And and easy, too. Like, well, come on, just whip those up. <laughs> yeah, just whip those little pieds up and no problem. <laughs> oh. Well, you're not the only one making progress. Hey, hey. I am making progress on something. This isn't actually on my resolution list, although mm-hmm. we did discuss it kind of jokingly. We talked about kind of switching personalities and <laughs> you going rogue and just having fun <laughs> with a recipe and not following the rules and me reading a recipe entirely the whole way through and following the rules exactly. Yeah. And I am happy to report that I did just that. <gasps> Andrea. I know. What? <laughs> Very exciting. Excuse me, wait. (laughs) This is messing with the space-time continuum. (laughs) This was really fun for me. It was the flourless fudge cookies from King Arthur Flour. Oh, yum. These are ultra-chewy, very rich chocolate cookies. They have no added fat. Mm -hmm. They have no gluten. And they get their texture from egg whites. They get their flavor from cocoa powder, which is the only fat in the recipe. Mm -hmm. 
I saw this recipe kind of come across my Mm -hmm. phone or my computer or something like that. And it first jumped out at me because I noticed that it was gluten-free. And I'm always looking for my friend who's gluten-free. Yeah. And then I noticed how many comments it had. You know, a lot of recipes will only have 10 comments or 12 comments. And this one had, I don't know, I think over 200. Whoa, yeah. I started looking at the recipe King Arthur's always good about putting in a tip section, and they said, Yes. This recipe can be tricky to nail, especially the first time out. Please read our blog post, Putting a Tricky Recipe to the Test, Mm -hmm. for some handy tips. Okay. So I thought, okay, this is a recipe that clearly is not as easy as it looks because they've had to write an entire blog post on how (laughs) to actually follow the recipe. Yes, they are escorting you to an entirely different section of the website to read more about it. Yes. Exactly. And the blog post was so interesting because King Arthur has that baker's hotline where you can call if you have questions. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's why they ended up writing this blog post because they were getting so many calls from people who were saying, these are not working. Okay. And what I loved about both the blog post and the recipe is they gave you the why behind the rules. So I have now realized this is what I need to follow a rule. So for example, Mm -hmm. the very first rule is to lightly grease two baking sheets or line a baking sheet with parchment and grease the parchment. Now, normally, I would read that and say, I'm not going to grease parchment. That's stupid. (laughs) And and I would just disregard that. And so right after that instruction, they say, yes, grease the parchment. These cookies are sticky, and they need to be baked on a greased surface. Oh, so now you understand. Now I understand the why. And when you look at the comments and you look at the blog post, they show you pictures of here's what happens if you don't grease the parchment. And it was like, okay, this is what finally worked with my brain. Ah. So I followed all of their instructions. The only one I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't follow their instruction. They made a suggestion that the smaller cookie sizes work better than the larger. Mm -hmm. But I just love a big, large cookie. I would rather have one big large cookie than you know two smaller ones a big large chewy cookie too sounds yes, like heaven mm-hmm. it's just like heaven so I went ahead and make these I thought they were absolutely amazing they mention adding chocolate chips or chopped nuts up to two cups okay if you do that of course it's going to change the baking time but the cookies will actually hold together better so I did decide to do that mm. and they were absolutely amazing everyone who ate them loved them They keep really well in the refrigerator. And Stefan, you know I'm not a fan of the cold cake, but I have a new thing I love, and that is a cold cookie. A cold, chewy cookie. Fantastic. Yeah, it was almost like a cold brownie. So I will post a link to these. I highly recommend them. And I now understand why it makes sense to follow the instructions in a recipe. (laughs) So I have a few questions here. I might need to drill down into your brain now that this, you know, transformation has occurred. But the first (laughs) is about the recipe itself. Yeah. Are these egg whites only or is it an entire egg? It's egg whites only. So I love this kind of recipe too. You know, oftentimes throughout the year we'll be baking or cooking something that just needs the yolk and we're always on the lookout for something to do with those whites. So let's stick this aside as, hey, you've got extra whites this week. Here's what you can make. I love that. Oh, that's a good, good point. I didn't even think about that. Yes. How did you feel, Andrea, when you followed the recipe and you got to the end with your (laughs) raging success and you said, yes, I followed the rules and 
here I am at the finish line with my lovely cookies. You know, in this particular one, I felt really good about it because from the comments, I knew that had I not followed the rules, bad things would have happened. Yeah, yeah. One thing I really do hate is food waste. Oh, yeah. And this uses a lot of confectioner's sugar. It has salt. It has cocoa powder. It has the egg whites. It has vanilla. Yeah. I chose to put in the chocolate chips and the nuts. And so if it hadn't worked out, I would have been really disappointed. Now, normally, I would have just been disappointed in the recipe maker, which is completely wrong. (laughs) And instead, I should be disappointed in myself because if you don't follow a recipe and then you're disappointed in the results, you really have no one to blame but yourself. Mm. In this case, I was just so happy that they gave that backstory. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've always mentioned that I love reading cookbooks, not even just baking from cookbooks, but just reading them. Yes. And this read to me more like a story, like a dramatic story of, you know, how did the test kitchen, they're thinking to themselves, well, we made this and it turned yes. out fine. Why are so many people having trouble? And so it was almost like a detective story as they sort of tracked down. Sure, a mystery. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are people doing wrong that is making this particular recipe so difficult? And so I just really enjoyed that aspect. But then clearly people were having the same reaction as you and being like, no, I'm just going to skip that. And then they would have this horrible experience. So they knew at some point they had to put those very detailed instructions and explanation in there then you would follow it and you would have amazing success yeah and I think that you know kind of giving those whys behind things and then telling people I really like this sort of thing where they would say things like this sticky batter will be the consistency of a thick syrup yeah it was really important to let people know that this is going to be different than your traditional cookie batter and that's okay this is how it's supposed to be yeah yeah Well, I'm proud of you, and stay tuned for the day when I substitute and disregard and (laughs) just let those shackles fall right off and and be footloose and fancy-free in the the kitchen. (laughs) I look forward to that day, and I hope you have as much success on that day as I did with these flourless chocolate cookies. Aw, me too. Well, Andrea, here we are. I can't believe I am saying it is our third annual pie month this is a month we have done from the start have had so much good times good food great pies over the years and so here we are again it is our february theme andrea no matter how many pies we have made over the seasons and even though the fact this is our third pie month when we start talking pie with people We know that there are still so many questions out there. There is so much hesitation and anxiety about making pies. So we felt justified in going forward one more time, at least with this annual pie month. Do you get that feeling from our listeners and from our Facebook community? I do, absolutely. And in fact, I'm thinking back to our our Pies and Prosecco live event we did back in July of 2018. We had eight people, some of whom have never made their own crust. And we had some very accomplished bakers in the group who had, for example, never made a lattice crust. It's very intimidating to people. It's something that if you're on your own, you can get nervous and think you're not doing it right. And it's hard because typical crust recipes say things like, add enough water. Add four to 10 tablespoons of water. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's such a difference. Yeah. I love that we're starting out with a pie that doesn't have your traditional rolled crust because I do feel like that's something that makes a lot of people stop at pie. And we want people to say, go, when they think of pie. 
Yeah, absolutely. Full steam ahead. And guess what, folks? It still counts. It's still a pie. There are so many great, delicious pies that don't rely on a pastry crust. We are hoping this is going to be one of them. Our first bake-along during Pie Month is a next-level Banoffee pie. It is from the BBC Good Food magazine. Now, Andrea, have you heard or eaten a Banoffee pie? I have never eaten one. I am so excited about this particular recipe. I have heard of a Banoffee pie in the classic London movie that I watch every year at holiday time, Love Actually. Uh, yes, 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 yes. That scene where Kira Knightley shows up with that Banoffee pie, I remember the first time I saw that thinking, oh, that sounds good. And I had looked it up. And of course, it's a combination of bananas, which I love, and sort of that toffee flavor, which I love. So I am kind of surprised that I don't see it more here in the U.S. because it looks fabulous. I think loyal listener Carolyn was posting on our Facebook community, or maybe she and I were just having a conversation. She has been making Banoffee pies, and they are a huge hit. So I hope they are taking on more of a popularity in the States, because what is not to love? In this particular recipe, you are going with a cookie crumb crust. Now, they call for some dark chocolate hobnobs. Andrea, hobnobs are a cookie that is just everywhere here in England. I think you can get some varieties in your larger grocery stores. Have you seen them or like at Cost Plus Market? Yeah, so I have started sourcing those ingredients, and I'm glad you brought that up because I've already run into a difficult situation with the hobnobs. Okay. My regular grocery store has an international section, and they yes. have hobnobs, and they were all sold out. Oh. thought, well, that's weird, you know, but you could see the little tag on the shelf, yeah. but there were no cookies. Yeah, yeah. So I went to an alternate grocery store in town, and I was able to get, and I did buy, milk chocolate hobnobs. They did not have yeah. the dark chocolate. I talked with the grocery manager, and he said they were very popular over the holidays, and that's why they're all gone. Okay. So I wonder if people were giving that as kind of a holiday gift to their friends who maybe are missing that, you know, maybe a nice little stocking stuffer. But do you think I'll be okay with the milk chocolate instead of the dark chocolate, or do you feel that the dark chocolate's kind of a key part of the banoffee pie. Oh, I think you're going to be just fine. Okay. And for folks who aren't familiar with that cookie, it's like a kind of a crispy oat cookie and then one side is covered in chocolate and then they have the milk chocolate and then the dark chocolate variations. So if you couldn't find either one of those, I think some other fine substitutes would be an oatmeal cookie or chocolate graham crackers might work here as well. Okay. But I would veer more on the chocolate side. I think you do want the chocolate flavor down there. Okay. Good to know. So you're going to whiz everything up along with some butter to make your crumb crust. Press that into the bottom of your tart tin. They're saying a fluted tart tin, 22 centimeters. I'm going to need to check and see. I do have a fluted tart tin. I think mine might be a little bit bigger than that. Do you have that, Andrea, or will you just use a pie pl plate? What's your plan? Pie plate plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first plan is not to repeat that phrase because it sounds really difficult. <laughs> yeah, this was another thing I had marked with a question mark because when I think of a tart tin, I usually think of one that has a removable bottom. Yes. And so I wasn't sure if that was really important. And I don't have one anyway. So I was going to just use my regular old pie plate. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be fine here too. I okay. think banoffee pie is going to be fairly forgiving. Okay, great. So what kind of makes this the next level, you might be asking? And one of those 
reasons is that you're roasting the bananas. In the banafi pies that I've seen and that oh. I've eaten here, that is just okay. a layer of fresh banana. But here you are roasting some slightly overripe bananas along with some soft brown sugar and a bit of lime juice for a little bit of zing. So that's going to be one way they're looking to pump up some flavor there. One thing I was so excited about this recipe, and it kind of goes back to what you noticed about the flourless fudge cookies. You were like, oh, here's another recipe when you can use up egg whites. Yes. That's how I felt when I saw this recipe, and it said four slightly overripe bananas. I thought, oh, another recipe where I can use my overripe bananas. Perfect. I don't always have to rely on my banana nut bread. Here's something new I can do with them. Ooh, excellent. Then you are using a prepared caramel here in England that is really prevalent and it is called cooking caramel, but I think there's a dolce de leche very easily available in the States. Andrea, uh, you could also make yours in the Instant Pot. I know that's something you really love to do, but prepared is what's called for and would be just fine to use here. And this has been fun. Again, I mentioned I've been sourcing my ingredients, so I did know that as a fallback, I could make my own caramel using sweetened condensed milk in the Instant Pot, or I think there's even stovetop variations. But I did think I would try and find the tin. So when I was searching for my hobnobs, I was also looking for that caramel. And again, at the first grocery store, the man looked at me like I was crazy. He said, in a tin? (laughs) And I said, yes. And he was like, no, we don't sell caramel in a tin. Oh, man. And at the second grocery store, the man said, absolutely. And guess where he led me in the grocery store? (sighs) To the refrigerated case? No, to the Hispanic aisle. Oh, of course, of course, the Dolce de Leche, yes. Yes, and so I would not have looked there. So they had, um, they also had something right next to it called a table crema in a can that I've not noticed Mm. before. So it's fascinating how many things are in the grocery store, and it's not until you need it that you see it. Yes, yeah, that's so true. Even knowing I could make my own, I thought this is my first time making this pie. I want to follow the recipe, and I had such success following a recipe recently that I am newly inspired. (laughs) Excellent. That is so fantastic. You're also adding into that caramel, you are adding some banana chips. Andrea, I have a confession. I don't like banana chips. Oh, that's funny. Is it the taste or the kind of thickness of them? It's both, but it's actually mostly taste, which doesn't make sense to me because I love banana in kind of any other form. You name it. I love it. Well, you're not alone, and that's why I was asking, because I love banana chips, but my daughter, who literally should be a banana based on the (laughs) amount of bananas that she eats on a regular basis, she cannot stand banana chips. Yeah, yeah. I've said to her, but you love bananas, and she said it's something about how thick they are. She actually feels like they're hard work to eat. Yeah, I agree. They're kind of plasticky. Yeah, and so I did want to point out here, because one thing I buy a ton of is roasted plantain chips, and those are a little bit thinner, but those are more on the savory side. And I do believe, I'm guessing, even though I haven't had this pie, you correct me, I do believe they want the more sweeter banana chips that you would get maybe on the aisle next to other, you know, sweet and dried fruit. Yeah, like you might find that in your bulk section or with your dried fruit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think that's what it's looking for. And, you know, I'm not sure it's so much for the sweetness as it is for some nice texture because you're going okay. to have the crunchy cookie crumb crust and then you've got that really smooth caramel and mixed in maybe some crunchy banana chips and then you're going to top it off with the whipping cream topping. So I'm guessing it's just to play around with the texture and also add some more banana flavor. Okay. Okay. And then, as I just alluded to, you are topping all of this delicious goodness with a peanut butter whipped cream. 
I might just start making peanut butter whipped cream all the time. It's my standby. My go-to <laughs> whipped cream will be peanut butter whipped cream. It sounds great. It sounds so good to me. So Banoffee Pie always uses a peanut butter whipped cream, or is that specific to this recipe, the addition of the peanut butter? Yeah, when I look at this recipe, the two things that are the pumped up Mm -hmm. are the roasted bananas and the peanut butter in the cream. I think they're like just what would go with chocolate and banana? Peanut butter. So yeah, I think they're just adding some extra flavor there. Yeah, well, that sounds great to me. And for those of you who are not used to the English terms, I will remind you that the icing sugar is what we in the U.S. call confectioner sugar, yeah, and the double cream is what we would call a heavy cream. Listen to you. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I know. I just took that section like I knew what you I was talking do. about. I probably should have deferred to you on that particular Perfect. one. No need. <laughs> And then just do take a look here. You need to chill this in the fridge for at least four hours. So give yourself some time ahead. Even though everything is assembling really pretty quickly and easily, you do need to set that in the fridge for four hours. Remember, we will have a link to this next level Benoffee pie from BBC Good Food magazine up in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 110. And we'll also put a link up on our Facebook community. Stefan, we thought we'd kick off this month of pie with some backstory on everyone's favorite pastry. And this also allows you to indulge in one of your favorite topics, (laughs) food history. (laughs) It turns out pie has a pretty amazing food history. Oh, I'll say. For those of us who might think of pie as a very wholesome, very all-American dessert, the pride of the county fair, it has a long and very colorful story that really surprised me. (laughs) Let's start back, way back, in 6000 BC. Historians believe Pi can loosely be traced back to the ancient Egyptians during the Neolithic period. This was a time marked by the use of stone tools and the establishment of permanent villages and also the practice of crafts like pottery. Back then, pies were essentially rustic, freeform tarts like today's galette. In fact, that's what they were called. They were made with a rough oat, wheat, rye, or barley crust filled with honey and baked over hot coals. But a few centuries later, around 1300 BC, they became more sophisticated and started adding nuts and fruits, right? Right. And in fact, drawings of these types of pies can be found etched on the tomb of Ramses II, located in the Valley of the Kings. Preheated road trip! The tradition of galettes was carried on by the Greeks for the next thousand years. Historians believe that the Greeks actually originated pie pastry as we know it today. The pies during this period were made by a flour water paste wrapped around meat. Yum, sign me up. This served to cook the meat and seal in the juices. And their historic name, translated to coffin or trap, tells us that many, many foods were pies in the strict sense since there were no baking vessels. Much food had to be cooked wrapped in pastry. I'm guessing there's not too many things that started off being advertised as a coffin that have transformed into such a cozy treat, is there? (laughs) But that method, and indeed that dish, was expanded by the Romans around 160 B.C., Yes, the Romans loved those pies and carried home recipes as a prize after conquering Greece. They loved their meat pies, even for dessert. In fact, a favorite dessert of wealthy Romans was a pie stuffed with oysters, mussels, and other fish. Mm. 
we're tackling that next week, right? Oh, I can't wait. I mean, <laughs> you know my sideline hobby as a shellfish farmer. I have got <laughs> bags of mussels and oysters ready to go. But the other way the Romans helped pie spread throughout Europe was via their famous roads, and every country started adapting the pies to suit their taste and their available ingredients. But I wonder what the Romans would have made of the biggest pie trend a short thousand years later in the 14th century. I would love to time travel for this next bit of history, Andrea, that of the animated pie. Oh. A trend that really gives new meaning to the phrase dinner and a show. <laughs> now, you're familiar with the classic nursery rhyme, sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie? Yes, but oh dear, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> well, according to that rhyme, when the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? And now, to quote food historian Linda Stradley, In all likelihood, those birds not only sang, but flew briskly out at the assembled guests. Rabbits, frogs, turtles, other small animals, and even human court jesters and clowns were also set into the pies, <laughs> either alone or with the birds, to be released when the crust was cut. The jesters would emerge from the crust and walk down the length of the table, cracking jokes and doing tricks. This was especially popular at the table of French King Charles V in the 14th century, and during that same time period with the Duke of Burgundy, whose chef once made an immense pie which opened to the strains of 28 musicians playing from within. Well, I know what I'm doing at my next dinner party. <laughs> edible pies and 16th century England, when pastry was still used as a cooking vessel. The crust was the dish. It was never going to be eaten, and it was probably very tough and unflavored, not to mention charred from being cooked over an open fire. In fact, if you visit Hampton Court, one of King Henry VIII's favorite homes here in London, it has an entire kitchen just for pies. Oh, preheated road trip! <laughs> Well, let's jump forward yet again to the time of the English settlers in North America. The English had been baking pies for years, most notably shepherd's pie and cottage pie, and the pilgrims brought their favorite recipes with them. In their new home, they incorporated local berries and fruit and started putting the dough in a round, shallow dish to literally cut the corners and make the pastry and filling stretch further. And it wasn't too long after, in the great scheme of things, that the pie we recognize today really came into its own. Right. In the 1700s, pioneer women often served pies with every meal, thus firmly cementing this pastry into a unique form of American culture. The crust became flavorful, the fillings became sweet, and pie quickly moved to the forefront of contests, picnics, and other social events, a place it still retains today. I'm still reeling from the thought of a live human jumping out of a pie. <laughs> You know, it's not pie, but hearing this history is reminding me so much of the Sussex Pond pudding we steamed back in episode 73. Yes. That's where I learned via a video with Paul Hollywood and a food archaeologist that in medieval times, they wrapped the suet dough around a lump of butter and then put the whole thing in a cheesecloth, boiled it, and ate it. Yeah. And then in the 18th century, they started adding the dried fruits and the spices to kick up the flavor. Finally, fast forward to the 1950s, where they stuck a whole lemon in the middle. So it's so interesting to see how these recipes evolve over a long span of time. I would love to be a food archaeologist. Oh, you'd be so good at that. <laughs> there is so much more history about this fascinating dessert. 
And thank you so much to the excellent website, What's Cooking America, and the remarkable work of food historian Linda Stradley. Yes, that resource is one you can always turn to whenever we are doing a food history segment. I know, Stefan, you could probably just spend hours reading her work. Yes. If any of you want more information on specific pies or on a whole host of other foods, both modern and historic, please do check it out. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. Our episodes drop every Monday and we hope you join us next week for a delicious seasonal fruit pie. That's right. In the depths of winter, we'll make the most of what's available with a beautiful and surprisingly historic pear pie. And we'll talk all about how to master crusts. Whether single, double, blind baked, or lattice topped, we'll share our techniques and favorite recipes. And we'll see how that pumped up Banoffee pie fared on both sides of the Atlantic. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Preheated road trip. <laughs> <laughs> okay.